This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Chapter 13 is a continuation where Satan puts to work first the coming of the beast out of the sea and secondly the beast coming forth out of the earth in verse 11. So we begin with verse 1. <clears throat> and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea and he had ten horns and seven heads and on his horns he had ten crowns and on his heads blasphemous names. The first thing I have to say is that we have a chapter division that causes a bit of a problem. Does the lion and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, does it belong to chapter 12 as the last verse? Or is it part of chapter 13, verse 1? <clears throat> the reading in the first line is either he, that is the dragon stood, or I, John, stood. In Greek, the difference is only one letter. If you don't know a word about Greek, all you have to do is look at the two words, estathe, which means he stood, or estathein, which means I stood. The extra letter <coughs> N may have slipped in because of a scribe's faulty hearing. It may have been an accommodation to the verb I saw. Of course, the reverse could also be true, namely that the subject in the immediate preceding verse is the dragon. In addition, the better Greek manuscripts have the reading he stood. If we adopt the reading I stood, this is the only place in the Revelation where John changes his physical position without having received instructions to do so. For this reason, I prefer the reading he stood. Nonetheless, the problem still remains whether the first line of this verse should be part of the last text in the preceding chapter or be combined with the first verse of this chapter. I have chosen the second option. Believing that the dragon is and remains the subject in both chapters, I suggest, therefore, that the line in question can stand by itself as a heading to the first part of chapter 13. The interpretation. <clears throat> if the dragon stands on the sandy beach of the sea, how do we interpret the word sea? Before we answer this intriguing question, we must view the dragon standing on the shore as a divining line between sea and land. He employs two helpers in the form of two beasts. He first calls forth a beast out of the sea and then summons the beast out of the earth. These two beasts work together in an effort to destroy God's people. The context clearly shows that the whole world and all its inhabitants worship the first beast. John himself interprets the sea symbolically 
in 17 verse 15 where the angel told him the waters that you saw on which the prostitutes sat they are the peoples and the crowds and the nations and the languages. Similarly, Old Testament prophecies support a symbolical interpretation. Isaiah 17.12 mentions raging nations like the raging sea. Daniel 7.3 describes four beasts coming up out of the sea as an allusion to humanity. <clears throat> we also note that John already had written that the beast came forth out of the abyss. That places the beast's environment and incorporates sacrilegious humanity. The interpretation <coughs> that the beast represent Rome is too restrictive in view of the totality of the human race worshipping him. In our symbolism, <clears throat> And I saw the beast coming up out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns he had ten crowns, and on his head blasphemous names. If we interpret the word sea figuratively, it follows that the rest of this verse should be explained likewise. <coughs> Alluding to the Daniel 7.3 passage, John observes not four beasts, but one beast as in combination of four coming up out of the sea. This beast has ten horns and seven heads, but the number should not be taken literally to refer to seven kings. For instance, the enumeration of seven kings is so diverse that an indisputable explanation is out of the question. Some begin the count of the Roman emperors with Julius Caesar, others with Augustus, still others with Caligula. Even if a satisfactory exposition could be given, the interpreter would have difficulty explaining the literal meaning of ten horns and ten crowns. It is wise to assume the numbers 7 and 10 symbolically as figures of completeness and fullness and to apply them to the combined forces of world governments set against the saints on earth. The seven heads form a united front against God, His Word, and His people. And they attack with the complete power of ten horns. The seven heads and the ten horns are those of Satan himself, who already, who already has been described as a gigantic red dragon. Though staying in the background, Satan is using the beast, the image of world governments, to do the work for him. Notice that the dragon had seven heads with seven crowns on his heads, but the beast has ten horns with ten crowns on his horns. These are all figurative portrayals of earthly powers, the numbers, the heads, the crowns, and the, the corns and the crowns. All of these together exemplify a tremendous force that no one should take for granted. Satan uses world powers to advance his cause on earth, for he knows that his time is short. The term blasphemous names displays displayed on the seven heads of the beast, point to a motto, slogan, creed a government has adopted. In John's days, Caesar was revered as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God, which no Christian could confess. For the Christian, only Jesus was Lord and God. 
Other governments have made their anti-Christian teachings known by various slogans. For example, during the French Revolution, the slogan, Ni Dieu ni Maître, neither God nor Master, was blasphemously touted. Blasphemy is the ridiculing of all that is holy. John says that blasphemy is the slandering of God's name, His abode, and those who are in heaven. He mentions blasphemous names again when he describes the woman sitting on a scarlet beast in 17.3. John may have had in mind the prophecy of Daniel 11.36 that speaks about the king who exalts himself above every god and speaks blasphemous things against God. Verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, his feet like a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. For his, <coughs> for his imagery in this chapter, the author of Revelation relies on Daniel chapter 7. This verse also has its origin in that chapter. In it, Daniel portrays four beasts of which three are named, a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And the fourth is described as terrifying. These beasts depict four successive world empires. Neo-Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But John combines them into one beast to denote all the world powers hostile to Jesus Christ. The first portrayal is that of a leopard, noted for stalking its prey. Its amazing speed in capturing prey, its swiftness in dealing the death blow. The second picture is that of a bear, who with its powerful paws is able to tear its victims apart. And third, the lion's mouth symbolizes cruelty as it kills and devours wild animals. The three pictures of these beasts are a depiction of force, speed, and savagery. The object of this portrayal is to show that the dragon himself, <coughs> namely Satan, stands behind the beast coming up out of the sea. John writes, The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. The use of the expression dragon in this chapter corroborates his close relationship to the preceding chapter. That is, Satan is empowering the Antichrist to take the place that belongs to God and his Christ. He is the lawless one who sets himself up in God's temple and proclaims himself to be God. He receives power from Satan to be able to do all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. Look up 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 9. In addition, Satan gave the beast his throne, which is not limited to any one particular permanent location on earth. For example, Jesus told the church in Pergamum that Satan's throne was in their locale. Also, we read that an angel poured the fourth bowl of God's wrath on the throne of the beast and thereby cast Satan's kingdom into utter darkness. Last, Satan gave great authority to the beast, which means that he has granted him authority over all the kingdoms of this world. Through the beast, Satan 
rules this world as its titular head, Jesus acknowledges that the devil is the prince of this world. Verse 3a. And one of his heads was as if it had been mortally wounded, and the mortal wound was healed. The agent who inflicted the mortal wound is not mentioned, but the scriptures relate how God pronounced a curse on the serpent in the Garden of Eden, whereby the seed of the woman would crush his head. Genesis 3.15 John relates that the wound was caused by the sword, which is indicative of a battle that had taken place. The spiritual battle took place when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Thus he defeated Satan. Although Satan's wound had been fatal, it had been healed. With, with this description of Satan, John delineates a parody of the death and resurrection of Jesus, whose place the beast wants to usurp. Many scholars understand the fatally wounded head to be the first of seven Roman emperors, possibly Nero. The healing of the mortal wound would then refer to the legend of Nero Redivivus, that is, coming back to life. But this interpretation meets objections. For one, why would John allude to a legend in a chapter filled with symbolism? If in this chapter we interpret the number seven as literally referred to seven kings, what interpretation is there for number ten? Next. The text intimates that an outside agent administered the fatal wound to one of the heads, but history records that Nero himself inflicted the wound that resulted in his death. Last, I mention above, the parallels between Christ and the beast are numerous in this chapter. This signifies that the author is not interested in identifying one of the heads of the beast with one particular Roman emperor or even one empire. John identifies the beast with God's opponent, Satan himself. His purpose throughout Revelation is to show contrast. Here it is the contrast of the lamb that was slain and the beast who has one, he one head that was mortally wounded. The emphasis is not on the one head that was wounded and healed. Instead, John states that the beast was wounded and lived. The world of unbelief worshipped not the head that was slain and healed, but the beast that was alive and well. Verses 3b and 4. And the whole earth marveled following the beast. 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, asking who is like the beast and who is able to make war against him. Not just single individuals, believers are excluded, but the whole world of unbelievers marveled and worshipped the beast. This interpretation is supported in 17.8b, where John comments, And the inhabitants of the earth will be astonished, those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the earth. They see the beast that was and is and is not and will come. Each passage must be seen in its own context, however, 
for the two do not relate the same event. The world worships the dragon. This is evident in that people believe the lie instead of the truth. They uphold the death of innocence instead of the sanctity of life. And they practice immorality instead of striving to live a moral and upright life. Even though there is repetition in verse 4 of the phrase, they worshipped the there is no reason to delete the first part of the verse, they worship the dragon, for he gave authority to the beast. John intends to make it clear that the worship of the dragon is the same as the worship of the beast, that is, the beast is the instrument in the hand of the dragon. Throughout this chapter, the dragon is present, but always in the background. The beast is doing the work for him. The dragon empowers the beast with authority, which again is an imitation of Jesus, who shortly before his ascension said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice that in this chapter, the verb to worship occurs five times, of which one refers to the dragon and four to the beast. The question asked by the people is, Who is like the beast and who is able to make war against him? The readers and hearers of the Apocalypse were familiar with the hymnody derived from the Old Testament and would recognize that the question raised by unbelievers is a parody of the songs of Zion. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glory, working wonders? Exodus 15:11. Satan, who wants to occupy God's place, appears in the form of the beast. Brazenly, he queries whether there is anyone like the beast. This question expects a negative answer. For with the authority the beast has received, there is no one on earth who is able to oppose him. With the second part of the question, the beast challenges God's people to engage him in battle his aim is to overpower them, lead them into captivity, and kill them. Does the lie triumph over truth, evil over good, injustice over justice, dishonesty over honesty, vice over virtue? virtue? The answer is no, because God is in control. Through His Son, God establishes justice, truth, righteousness, and peace. The beast and ultimately... Satan will face the wrath of God and the Lamb. Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth to speak great things and words of blasphemy, and he was given authority to do so for 42 months. Four times in two verses, the phrase was given appears, 5 and 7. Satan is the one who gave the beast power and authority. Yet the ultimate sovereign is God Almighty. In His inscrutable wisdom, God allows the beast to blaspheme, exercise authority, and wage war against the saints. The background for the phrase, a mouth to speak great things and words of blasphemy, is taken from Daniel 7, verses 8, 11, and 20. Daniel mentions little horn, namely the Antichrist, who had a mouth and spoke boastful words. 
He describes the work of the Antichrist in great detail by revealing that a king will speak words of blasphemy against God, exalt himself above all gods, make war against mighty fortresses, and appoint rulers over many people. Arrogant with power and authority, the beast uses modern means of communication to spread the lie, subvert justice, teach false doctrines, and revile the name of God in his Christ. He thinks himself to be in full control, yet knows that he is unable to subvert God's people, that he is accountable to God, and that his time is short. God allots him a total of 42 months to rule on the face of the earth. 42 months or three and a half years is the same as 1260 days. These references appeared earlier in the two preceding chapters where John noted that the Gentiles would trample the holy city for 42 months and the two witnesses would prophesy for 1260 days. And he related that the woman, the church, would be cared for in the desert by God for 1260 days or time, times and a half time, namely three and a half years. Chapter 12, verses 6 and 14. These references signify the entire period during which the gospel is proclaimed from the time of Jesus' first coming to his promised return. In that period, Satan, through the beast, blasphemes God's name, bans the preaching of his word, and attempts to destroy the church. Verse 6. And he opened his mouth for blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. The words he opened his mouth reflect an Aramaic idiom. We are reminded of the gospel writer's idiom. He opened his mouth and said, Matthew 5, 2 in the King James, typical Hebraic, which simply means he said so here the meaning is that the beast spoke words of blasphemy toward God. His sole purpose of existence is to be in opposition to God and his Christ. He wants to occupy the place of God and thus speak constantly against his name, his dwelling place, and his people. We'll examine these three items successively. First, his name. The names of God are the same as the revelation of God, for the Almighty makes himself known to us through his names. The beast denies that God and his Son have anything at all to say in the world in which Satan functions as priest. Thus in Satan's kingdom, the written word of God may not be read, heard, or distributed. God's commandments may not be observed as rules of life in society. And the name of Jesus must be confined at best to private worship and under no circumstances can enter the numerous spheres of life. The beast teaches that everything in the world has come into existence by human power and serves to glorify human achievements. His dwelling. The choice of words is interesting. For the literal translation is tent, that is tabernacle, skene. The word appears only three times in the Apocalypse and refers to God's dwelling in the midst of his people. 
The image of the Old Testament tabernacle in the desert comes to mind when a cloud covered this tent and God's glory filled it. It is the tabernacle with its two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holies. Into the holy of holies, the high priest entered once a year as representative of God's people to atone for sins by the sprinkling of animal blood. The beast desires to occupy God's place and dwell in the midst of humanity on this earth, ruling over mankind. And now his people. John uses the, the noun tent for God's dwelling place and the verb to tent for God's people. The Greek literally reads, and his tent and those who tent in heaven. Once again, we must call to mind the Sinai desert scene of God dwelling in the tabernacle surrounded by his people who dwelled in tents. It is a picture of harmony and peace, which John, in similar wording, expresses about the consummation. But there is more. <clears throat> we can extend the illustration by saying that God spreads his tent over his people so that they together live in God's abode. The italicized words in the phrase, those who dwell in heaven, remind us that blasphemers on earth are not afraid to slander celestial beings, 2 Peter 2.10b. The beast blasphemes God's people whose citizenship is in heaven. At the same time, the saints on earth are one with those in heaven, yet only those on earth experience the wrath of the devil. They are the people whom the beast persecutes, as the next verse, verse 7, reveals. Now, verse 7, And he was given power to make war against the saints and to overcome them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. The first part of the text is a repetition of 11.7. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war against them and will overcome and kill them. It is also language borrowed from Daniel 7.21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. The incongruity of this warfare is that the one who conquers is defeated and those who are defeated by him are in the end designated as conquerors. The saints indeed are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. They may lose their lives while on earth in their opposition to the powers of the Antichrist, but they will spend eternity with Christ living and reigning with Him. Of the saints it is said that they have overcome the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony, and they did not love their lives even in the face of death, that is, Opposed to death. Right coming up to death. 12 verse 11. The passive voice he was given intimates that in his providence God permits the beast to exercise authority over the saints and to rule the people on the earth. It is true that it is Satan who gives the beast authority and power. But it is God who is in control and allows this transaction to take place. As in verse 5, so here we twice read the words, He was given. 
God's people realize that although the forces of the evil one are strong and able to overcome them, deliverance comes from God. Satan increasingly governs every tribe, people, language, and nation. Nonetheless, even if the devil seems to have power over the saints on earth, he is unable to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38, 39. Jesus told his followers that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John 10:28. Once again, we see the beast as the Antichrist using to usurp the place of Christ. The Son of Man was given authority, and all peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. Daniel 7:14. The Antichrist was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And they worship the beast. God is the one who assigns authority both to the Christ and the Antichrist with the distinction that the Christ is victorious over the beast. Verse 8. And all those living on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And all those living on the earth will worship the beast. John looks to the future and predicts that the population of this earth will follow the directions of the beast and worship him. On all the continents, the people as a whole will obey and venerate the Antichrist. The Greek text indicates the masculine pronoun him for the Antichrist to indicate that he will appear in human form. This person will receive the adulation of all the people of the earth, except the saints. John clearly divides humanity into those who worship the beast and those whose names are recorded in the book of life. It is a division of the unregenerate over against the regenerate. The unbelievers opposite the believers. The ungodly versus the godly. The Antichrist seeks to imitate Christ who purchases his people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The beast desires world domination by having everyone not written in the book of life to follow him. We read, Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life, this book belongs to the Lamb who died for all whose names have been recorded in it. These people belong to him because the time of creation, since the time of creation, and therefore he protects and delivers them from the evil one. He has given the solemn assurance that he will never erase their names from the book. John writes the name, the word name, and the verb written in the singular, to indicate that he is not referring to a group as a whole, but to the individual believer who receives the assurance that he or she is a child of God. Unbelievers, those who reject God's word and the testimony of Jesus, never had their names recorded in the book of life. They are the followers of the beast and they worship him instead of the Lord of lords and King of kings. Thus they are followers of the devil whose final destiny they share. 
The names of the believers, however, have been recorded in the Lamb's book of life from eternity. We read, The Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. How do we interpret these words? Should the phrase from the foundation of the world be taken with slain or with the verb to written? The answer to this question lies in reading other passages that shed light on this matter. John says, quote, And the inhabitants of the earth will be astonished, they whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the earth. 17, verse 8. Here he omits the reference to the slain lamb and thus indicates that God's elect were chosen in eternity. Paul also testifies that God chose His people in Christ before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 Having said that, we should note that God chose Christ for the task of redeeming His people before the world was created. 1 Peter 1.20 And this task implies that He eventually would be slain at the time God appointed for Him. Unbalanced. The evidence John supplies in 17 verse 8 is telling. For there he connects the phrase from the foundation of the world with written. The objection can be raised that the phrase is too far removed from the verb in question. This objection may be valid, yet the fact remains that in John's writing... This phenomenon occurs often when he wishes to qualify a noun in greater detail. He explains the phrase, the book of life, for the modifiers of the lamb that was, that was slain. In short, the book of life with all the names of God's people belongs to the slain lamb of God. Here is a word of comfort for the saints on earth who experience the onslaughts of the evil one. The names are recorded in the book of life and the Lamb who was slain on their behalf has purchased them to live with Him eternally. 5 verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Verse 9. The message of the preceding verse is loud and clear. The Lord is on the side of His people on earth. Let all those who hear these comforting words take note. For through His servant... John, the Lord addresses them. Let me read it again. For through his servant, John, the Lord addresses them. The saying, if anyone is an ear, let him hear, is common and reminds us of the letters Jesus sent to the seven churches and to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 15. These words pertain first to what was said in the preceding verses And next, they serve as a bridge to what follows. The message is addressed to the individual believer who must take a stand for Jesus amid deceit and falsehood, persecution and death. The Christian occupies a lonely position of being the target of the Antichrist and his subordinates. Experiencing the hardships, the elect know that God is on their side and will avenge his adversaries. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary.
and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.